Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that define their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirstie McGuire, Executive Director of PE Win. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network also known as P.E. Win, We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. P.E. Win provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of P.E. Win, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as the Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets until she let it sail in 2014. She is now the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation, and serves on the board of the Greenbrier Companies and Grasshopper Bank, and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to our latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Kelly Williams, the founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network and the chief executive officer of the Williams Legacy Foundation. I'm incredibly excited to have my friend, Netta Dinesh here with me today. She is the co-founder and managing partner of Prelude Growth. Um, And I feel so lucky to have been there with her at the very beginning, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But welcome, Netta. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's uh, so exciting to be here and to be part of this. Well, you have such an interesting and unique story that I've been dying to share with our listeners. Um, I want to start where I always start, which is at the beginning, and ask you to tell us a little bit about how and where you grew up. Sure. So when I was seven years old, my parents and I and my sister left my birth country, Iran, that was in the midst of a revolution. And my parents packed up everything they had in two suitcases, and we flew to London. My father was a geologist, so his options were London because of the North Sea or Dallas because of, obviously, the oil industry there. And I may have had a very different accent today if they picked Dallas. Um, But we did move to London, and um, I think very quickly just came to realize the Uh, the difficulty of that experience, mostly for my parents, leaving their country when they were in their late 30s, and um, very quickly realizing, starting from scratch with nothing but two suitcases and two small girls, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and how hard that was, and just sacrifices that they, um, they made for us during that period. So, um, So I spent my time growing up in the UK. I remember showing up to school at the age of seven. I didn't speak a word of English and walking into a classroom where 
I didn't understand anything that anyone was saying. I didn't know what these girls and boys were talking about. And um, I do remember that day. I remember crying. My sister had the opposite personality. She went straight into the classroom and started playing. And I had to take for a whole year extra classes outside school to improve my English. Um, and um, I do have a photo of my eighth birthday, which is, you know, a year after because we moved in October, um, 12 months later, being at my birthday party with my friends and my family and feeling happy. And so it was a hard year. It was a year of transition. Great story. Well, so I... I've always been so um, admiring of Persian culture, and we we have a number of women in the private equity world. I think, in particular, of you and Mina Nazemi, who are Persian, and uh, and you, you know, are incredible leaders and creative thinkers. Is there something unique to your background you think that that informs that? You know, it, it's it's interesting. I think two things, which is. Despite the oppression that the country has gone through, I think it's a country that values education. And so I think education, education, education. I think that, you know, I remember my father instilling that in me, but it's it's an Iranian Persian culture piece to instill education. And secondly, I would say Iranian women are some of the strongest women I know, which is ironic given the culture and the oppression that they go through in their own country and in their own culture. But, you know, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. She stopped working um, when she gave birth to me, as you did in those times. But she's a brilliantly smart woman who instilled in me. While my father spoke about education, education, she spoke to me about independence, independence. I, I, um, I recall that vividly, both financial independence that she yearned for me and just independence of thinking and thought and having grown up with a sister. So I think Iranian, I would just push it, put it down to the focus on education and the importance of just these being surrounded by strong Iranian women who run the home and run the family, but are very independent thinkers um, that I think leads to a lot of great men <laughs> because they, they make great mothers and great mm -hmm great women coming um, from that country and many leaders across all sorts of industries. I think it's remarkable to see the American Iranians who've grown up in this country and all the things that they've achieved. So talk a little bit about how you transitioned into the United States. So um, I came with Morgan Stanley. Um, actually, Morgan Stanley was my first job I um, I interviewed with them when I was a liberal arts student at Cambridge. They were coming to campus. There was one coveted role because I grew up in England. I was at Cambridge University. And in, in, in those days, aging myself, there was one summer internship role. They hired one person from each country all over Europe. And there were 12 summer interns, which then transitioned to a full-time role. And I didn't know what a balance sheet was. I didn't know what a cash flow was. I had no idea. It was liberal arts background, but I was intrigued and I wanted to go and I had no business to get that job. But I deeply connected with my interviewer. He was from Pakistan, which is a neighbor of Iran. He had also come to this country as a young child and 
we started to talk about that and we connected about on that topic and just made a very personal connection. And he saw something in me and I got the job. And so my first job was coming into Morgan Stanley. And then I spent the next two years in London and there wasn't a business school culture in the, in the UK. And so I decided to do a third year, believe it or not. I loved it. I loved the firm. I loved investment banking. I felt for a 20-year-old, 21, 22-year-old to have that kind of experience uh, was pretty remarkable, uh, putting the hours aside. And so I came with Morgan Stanley on a one-year visa to the U.S. Um, to, to spend a year in the New York office. And that was 25 years ago. Um, and I stayed legally, <laughs> for the record. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, but that's quite something. Did your family stay in the U.K.? Yes. So my parents, my sister, everyone is in London. So, so that's that pretty fun. brave to have, you know, first, as you said, as a liberal arts major to go into finance and then move to the United States where you didn't have your family unit with you. That, that took courage. It did. But for me, uh, rightly or wrongly, New York was the center of the world. It was where everything was happening. I remember the very first trip I took was when I turned 18 and I got into college. And my father had promised me that me and my close friend could go on a trip somewhere and our parents would pay for it for a week. And of all the places in the world, we picked New York. And that's where I wanted to go. I'd never been to New York. I'd been to Washington because my uncle lived there. But that's of any place in the world. And it attracted me, the energy, the fact that it was, the, for me, the center of the world and big things happen in New York. And so that was the first trip and the first chance I had to go to a, have a work experience outside. I wanted to come to New York and I was excited, but yeah, it was, um, it was nerve wracking. And it was actually the first time I lived on my own because up to that point, I grew up in London. I was working at Morgan Stanley. I lived at home. <laughs> my parents mm -hmm. went through, but I was like, why am I going to pay for an apartment? I lived at home. I got my Persian food and my mom made my bed and I worked 80, 80 hours a week. But it was my first experience living on my own in this big city. But I loved it. I truly loved it. And I still do. That's great. I think about, um, you know, I often talk about uh, how how the rest of the country thinks about New York and has so many views about it, particularly Wall Street. You know, I'm not, I, I obviously, I think it's a mistake to demonize Wall Street for the reasons that you just articulated. You know, whatever you think of it, it, it is a center of excellence for our country. It's a center of excellence for the world. And one of the reasons that the United States is the most powerful country in the world is because we are the financial center of the world. And there are lots of other places in the world that would love to take our position. But New York is the, you know, we are the, the crossroads for all the financial tra transactions in the world. And I think, I think it's important that we as an industry do a better job of helping people to understand how important the things that we do really are to, to our country and to our national identity. Yeah, no, ab absolutely. And um, it's interesting when I'm now speaking to founders and entrepreneurs, um, because we, we live in such an impact 
world today. This is what consumers and everybody in the U.S. cares about. More times than none, I've been asked, which never happened 10 years ago, who are your LPs? What are their missions? What are they doing? And who are you helping? How did you think about selecting that group? And it's amazing because if you think about what we do as an industry and who, it, you know, who I report to and who we're working for and what those organizations are doing, it can be inspiring. So um, I think we can all do a better job personally and um, professionally uh, tell our collective stories. Yeah, I agree. Well, so tell us everyone a little bit about how you made it then into the private equity world. Sure. So after Morgan Stanley, I went to business school, didn't know what I wanted to do. So of course, ended up at McKinsey and um, knew I didn't want to be a consultant, but I met a great senior partner there who said, just made me relaxed and said, "You just think of this as two years. We don't want you here forever. We have a pyramid structure. Stop worrying about this because I was focused on this as my next big career. And so I did join McKinsey and it was a phenomenal experience. Um, I love the firm. My husband's been there for 22 years. So of course, I'm biased and had a phenomenal experience and then went into um, working. I worked in the retail industry for a couple of years because I thought I, perhaps I want to be an entrepreneur. So I had banking, consulting, consumer operating experience. But new corporate America wasn't for me pretty quickly in that experience. And um, I got introduced to another strong American Iranian woman, um, Shamin Mosavai Rahmani, who is senior at Goldman Sachs. Somebody was kind enough to introduce me and she was kind enough to give me her time. We'd never met before, but down, you know, I, I took a cab or, or the subway, I can't remember, to go down to 85 Broad Street and went into her office. And I was intimidated. Um, and she asked me lots of great questions. She was curious about me and my decisions and the path I had taken. And we spent about an hour together. And she said, you should do private equity. That's what you should do. And that's, that. you know, and, and in my mind, I said, I, I'm never going to get a job in private equity. I'm now four years out, five years out of business school. I've never worked in private equity and, um, but, you know, I, I, I somewhat didn't want her to think I was weak and questioning myself. So I somewhat, you know, worked around that. And then the meeting was over and she was driving uptown and she said, come in my car with me and let's keep talking. So we spent another 45 minutes getting from 85 Broad Street all the way up to the Upper East Side. And she was just remarkably kind about her time. And I was enthralled by her and her career and her success and especially being another American Iranian woman and um and so she put the idea into my head and 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 um obviously I knew what private equity was I had friends in the industry but um didn't think I had the experience to move into the industry and she convinced me otherwise and um and I'm forever grateful to that. And it was after that experience that I started to network with more people and got an introduction to Al Catterton. And in all honesty, they had been looking for a VP for nine months, hadn't found anyone, were looking for somebody with private equity experience, um, thought a lot of the people they'd met were arrogant or wanted too much. And 
here I was, somebody who was passionate about consumer, um, you know, had had the strategic bent and the banking experience, and they took a chance on me. But I also got lucky because they had been searching for a really long time. And I had a very similar background to one of the senior partners at the firm who that helps as well. Um, he had gone into private equity much later in his career, even later than me. And so I was fortunate to find that lucky um, needle in a haystack. Um, but I always tell people today, um, you know what, if you're resilient, I um, just keep at it and keep trying. And um, so I think it was the advice she gave me and then me going for it and uh, getting that role. And so that's how I ended up in the industry. You know, what's occurring to me as I hear you tell the story is that in both cases, um, you know, uh, first with Morgan Stanley and then with El Catterton, it's also sounds a bit like you were being, um, you know, your authentic self when you were interviewing for these positions because you connected with the person from Morgan Stanley and they were, you know, only taking a few people. Same thing with El Catterton because you were authentic. You connected with somebody who recognized your background and recognized the applicability. So, I mean, I think we've all learned over time that um, the more authentic you are, it's often helps you. Maybe it doesn't help you get the job, but maybe helps you get the right job. Yes, absolutely. And I think, look, um, pretty early on from that first interview at Morgan Stanley when I was in college, I learned the importance of personal interactions, personal experiences, connecting with people, building relationships. Look, I'm not great at it all the time, and I don't, um, um, we all have to work at it, and it's probably one of the things that if I go back in time, I wish I had done more of and invested more in those relationships and seeked out even more advisors and mentors, and it's the one thing I tell young women every single day, pick people up on your journey and surround yourself even Kelly, hopefully we'll get to the story of how I met you and reaching out to you. But I think personal connections, and it's everything about what we do today at Prelude Growth, connecting personally with a founder and convincing them to be on this journey with them and uh, building trust and building a personal connection and feeling like you have the same and importance of having shared values. And it is equally important to the dollar number that you put up there or there's lots of smart people. There's lots of capable people. Um, but I think that human experience and human touch and human connection um, has been everything in my career and um, something that um, some of it is intrinsic and some of it you can work on in your career. True. Well, so you happen to get very lucky that the place you landed was, you know, one of the market leaders in the space that you were passionate about, L. Catterton, certainly is a legendary firm. Um, and you spent your career there. You became a partner there. Can you talk about that path to partner? Because not everybody who goes into private equity makes it into the senior ranks. And so, you know, what would you say was unique about your path that helped you get to the senior ranks at a, at a firm like that? Uh, I would, again, putting aside grit and hard work and perseverance, um, 
as I think about this, I do think about the importance of building close friendships and personal relationships with your partner team or the partners that you work for, uh, investing in that in and out of the firm and making yourself part of the fabric of the firm. So the place wouldn't be the same without X. And there are people that are able to do that and their personality, their desire, the way they engage, their, their interactions. And I think beyond capabilities and hard work, et cetera, that we've talked about, I do think part of my success was the relationships that I had with a dozen other men who are men um, and having good relationships with them and close relationships where we all felt comfortable with each other. And at the same time, um, I would humbly say feeling and becoming a fab- part of the fabric of the firm and the culture of the firm. I, I think that's such an important point. And I, I always talk to people about that, particularly, you know, junior women as they're moving up, is to recognize that um, making yourself essential to the success of the person you work for is the surefire way to make sure you're successful because they become very invested in you. They bring you along. I still remember when I first started practicing law that one of the senior associates said to me, look, you're my lifestyle. You're the reason I get to go home at night and see my kids because I can trust you. I know you're taking care of things and getting things done. And so as a result, you know, he invested in me. He made sure I got interesting work, that I got trained because as I did better, he did better. And I think that's a really important thing. I think so many people come in to firms wanting, you know, even as a junior person saying, okay, how do I get to partner? And that's, that's not, in my view, not the way to think about it. Obviously, you want to know there's a path, but really it's the incremental steps. And as you say, weaving yourself into the fabric of the firm and making people think, gosh, I couldn't do my job if she wasn't there. Like, she's essential. Um, I think the hardest thing for women is often, though, making that transition from being the subordinate to being the peer and then sometimes even, uh, you know, being the boss, being in charge. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's especially true if you've grown up in a firm um, from an early stage. Um, I'm not sure, Kelly, I did it particularly well either until I you know, started my own firm, because really then you are the boss. Um, but it's something you continually work on. Well, so let's talk about that. Because um, you and I got to know each other really well when you started to think about uh, stepping out and joining with your partner and starting Prelude Growth. Absolutely. And again, like Charmaine, when I was starting to think about um, raising um, and starting uh, my own firm with my co-founder, you were, of course, top of my list of somebody I knew in the industry and an icon and reached out to you and said, please, will you have breakfast or coffee with me? And I remember exactly where we were sitting on the Upper East Side that morning. You're wearing, a white, you're wearing a white shirt. You were wearing your mm. classic big jewelry, um, which I loved. So I have vivid memories of that morning and seeking your counsel and advice. Um, but 
I think you wake up one day and you see tons of opportunity around you. And I hit my 40s and know myself well enough to know I was going to be working for the next 25, 30 years and wanting to have the next 25 year, 30 journey. And I thought there was a hole in the market for our vision for a firm like ours, but had lots of questions around how should we do this the best way to do this? Can we do this? Are we going to be successful doing this? And I think a particular mentor of mine um, who I'd known from McKinsey, he said to me something. He said, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And I trust him implicitly. And when he said that, I just calmed down. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had the good fortune of my husband working. So it wasn't a question of time being on my head, but it was a question of not if, but when, which made me feel really good because I trusted him implicitly. And then we were off and running on our journey. Yeah. And I often point to your example because I talk to a lot of women, as you might imagine, as part of PE Win, we have Project Pink Light. And so we're always talking to women who are thinking about starting their own firm and how to do it and how to, you know, there's always an inflection point where people finally say, okay, now's the time. And I've always been impressed with the way you were able to navigate your relationship with uh, L. Catterton. And I think, you know, you and I talked a lot about this and I talk about this actually with general partners, because of course, so many of these firms are, are really concerned when female partners or partners who are people of color leave because their LPs feel so strongly about diversity. And I always say, look, you can make it a win-win because if you're supportive and you're positive as those people transition out, your LPs are going to give you credit for that. It's if you treat them, I mean, there's so many examples of firms treating folks poorly, but I felt like you you did a really good job um, in first cultivating your relationship with your firm and then working with them on the way out the door. Yes. And I do give credit to one of the co-founders at the firm uh, who still runs the firm today, who I worked extremely closely with through my de- you know dozen years at the firm, whose entire uh, philosophy around business and relationships is it's a small world and don't let ego don't let um emotion get in front of that and it's a super small world and I still bear that today you know the number of times you grit your teeth and you swallow hard uh, in all facets but it's an incredibly small world so much so as I get calls as early, you know, I left six years ago and I got calls from potential LPs investing in the firm as early as six months ago. Uh, I'm sure people call them today and not just for that reason, but in all facets of, of business, it really is a small world and growing that in that kind of environment and being mentored by somebody who thinks that way philosophically, I think was hugely valuable to me. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I uh, I always use the motto, life is short and the world is round. And so um, you have to keep that in mind. And some little thing you do somewhere can always come back to you. So um, and so you and your partner, Alicia, um, 
hadn't had a firm together before, hadn't, hadn't worked together before per se, except, you know, around transactions. I knew you'd been trying to recruit her uh, in a variety of ways beforehand, but talk a little bit about that for, you know, for, for people listening um, to our conversation, how did you, the two of you approach this new partnership? I, th- I think as I think about one of the best decisions I've made in my career is partnering with Alicia. And I think one of the smartest decisions I've ever made in my career is I give myself full credit for that. And ho- ho- hopefully she feels the same, vice versa. But I think very early on, I had met her at Harvard Business School in 1999. So at this point, we've known each other for 24 years. And I respected her deeply intellectually for her values and who she was. And we had a shared passion for consumer. And so uh, this was exactly the type of person that I wanted to partner with. And partnership is one of the hardest things anyone will ever do, both in your personal life and in your professional life. So getting it right is everything. And, um, And I think for us, Um, I think the longevity of our relationship, the trust that we had for one another, the respect that we've had for for one another at that point um, was significant. And and I would say, Kelly, when you build deep trust-based relationships, I think what we always talk about at Prelude Growth and we talk about with Alicia and we talk about with our LPs as well is just the notion of positive intent And I love that word and I love that notion because no matter whether you're challenging someone or somebody is saying something or somebody has a different perspective from you, I think the people I have the best relationships with is when I never question the positive intent around why they're asking a question, what they're they're saying to me, how they're saying something to me because it comes from a place of positive intent. And those were my best relationships in my former firm. That is my relationship with my co-founder today and my team today. And so that notion of beyond trust and um, values and respect is, I think, positive intent trumps all that for me. Um, And it is something that we always maintained and kept. Um, and we spent the better part of close to a year, really um, as much time as we could in a room, in a closed room together, building collectively our strategy, our culture. It did not come quickly. We took a year to do that, but then we raised our fund in four months. That was pretty quick. Right. But there was a 12-month period where she was transitioning, I was transitioning, and it was a long process but we were able to really spend that year solidifying what we wanted to build and how we wanted to build it. Yeah. I mean, I remember that period and in, in talking with you and I think it was such time well spent. And I, I totally agree with you about um, if you found people that you trust, making sure that you approach their observations and input with positive intent, because as a leader, I find the worst possible thing that can happen for you is for people around you to shut down or be afraid to share things with you. And part of that comes from if you react to them because you think there's something nefarious in what they're saying, right? They, they say, well, gosh, all right, I'm not going to bring it up. And so, um, 
you know, the worst situations as a leader is if you don't have truth tellers around you and you don't have people who are willing to share things. Um, and you have to recognize if they're doing that, even if it's something you don't want to hear, that it's coming from a good place. Couldn't agree more. Well, we're going to take a quick break to thank the folks who've been sponsoring Moments That Made Her, and we will be back. We would like to take a brief break to thank PEWIN's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at PEWIN.org. Now back to today's guest. We are back with Moments That Made Her. I am really excited to be in this conversation with my dear friend, Netta. And we are going to talk a little bit about a question I think all of us have grappled with. But um, have there ever been times in your career where you felt particularly aware that you're a woman? Many times, absolutely. (laughs) I think the, um, the very first time I felt it, believe it or not, was uh, maybe controversially when I was pregnant because my my body was different. I looked different, even more so than usual. And I think there is this notion of rightly so men around you, you know, having their own moments of a wife who's being pregnant and being careful and thoughtful. And I didn't like being pregnant in a private equity firm. I didn't like my stomach being out here. I didn't like bobbling around. Um, I just didn't like it. I didn't like how it made me feel. And so more so than ever, I was self-conscious. When I walked Mm -hmm. into a room, self-conscious of my body and self-conscious about how I looked. So I think that was, I, I think about that as an early memory. And then of course, You've walked into an investment banking conference with 300 men and two women, and you just want to walk right back out. You just, you know, you don't want to walk in and you stay for as long as you can. And I don't enjoy it. It's not natural. It doesn't feel right. You don't, I don't like it. And, um, you know, I think we've certainly had those moments and you kind of sigh and you leave and you go, well, that was a big waste of time. Um, and, um, you know, going to an offsite with 49 men and you or going to a firm event where at the end of the night, it's awkward because people want to go to the bar and it's awkward. And so absolutely, I think it's more um, in um, social settings when it's not family. I felt it. Um, I felt it in big gatherings and I felt it when I was um pregnant. But other than that, Kelly, I day to day didn't feel it. Uh, Maybe felt it because I was a young woman with older gray haired men. But I think that that's more natural and people maybe a young guy feels that as well. But I think those would be the big moments when I felt it the most. Yeah, no, I would agree. I still remember um, 
at Credit Suisse going to, we had a big managing director's offsite down at, uh, down in Florida at Universal. And after all of the day's events and after the dinner, they had set up a tent, a, a cigar smoking tent. And so if you wanted to hang out with everybody, um, you had to go in there and very few women smoke cigars. And it's just, I find, I found it just a horrible smell. But if you wanted to have a chance to socialize with the powerful people in your firm, you had to do it. And it was just so clear that no one had really thought about the fact that perhaps women might not partake in that. But, um, you know, hopefully over time, I mean, Credit Suisse isn't going to have a chance, obviously, because they don't exist anymore. Uh, maybe that's prophetic, but, um, but yeah, and I think that's where those types of things that you discussed, that's where I think time that women invest, even when they have male partners in setting up a new firm, invest in thinking about what kind of culture that we want to create that makes both men and women feel welcome and have a, you know, have a platform where they can thrive. It's really time well spent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we think about that every day at Prelude because we're a pretty diverse firm. We're 50% male, female. Um, we have a good beyond female, good set of um, minorities represented as well. But it's an important piece to really think carefully about and what kind of culture do we want to build? And, you know, it's, it's this, you know, some of it comes innately from the top around who you are and your values, but some of it is very intentional from both Alicia and I around the firm that we're building here. So I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about that. I want to dive in because you and Alicia have, um, you know, created a really interesting, interesting firm, um, and obviously its structure, but also um, the part of the market where you invest and the types of company you invest, what the listeners can't see over your shoulder are cases of made good, um, which is one of your portfolio companies, one of your newer portfolio companies. Um, and so talk a little bit about how your own value system has, uh, has made its way into your investment philosophy. I think we start with, um, a firm that is very performance culture and performance driven because ultimately I think our success will lead to a lot of success hopefully in the industry beyond what we're doing and so I think what I would say Kelly is Alicia and I have on our shoulders not only the work that we're doing for our LPs and wanting to be successful because they're rooting for us and they all took a chance on us and we're so grateful and appreciative and want to make them successful by hopefully um, continuing to generate phenomenal returns. But beyond that, we do feel the weight of, in a good way, of women on our shoulders and women in this industry because we want to be successful to show that women in this industry building their own firm can be wildly successful and reach the top and hopefully be an example to other women. And so for us, I am doing this for myself and my family and my own personal satisfaction from the joy I get from doing what I do every day and the pleasure I get from doing everything I do. But I do it for my daughters 
I do it for other women in the industry and hopefully are just that performance success of if we are successful, it will lead to great things for the industry and for other women. And that's really, really important to me. And I felt it on the first day um, when I decided I was leaving El Cataton, I told my family and I told my girls who were five and seven at the time. And I never thought Cataton didn't even know. And I remember I went to pick her up because I was celebrating that day. I went to pick her up from kindergarten and she was in kindergarten and it was International Women's Day. It was March, I remember. And I went to pick her up and Tarika, her kindergarten teacher, said to me, congratulations, Neda. And I said, for what? And she said, Zara, who was five, told everybody how my mummy's going to be a boss. <laughs> and, and because she said they went around the circle on International Women's Day talking about inspirational women. And Zara mentioned her mom because today her mom or yesterday her mom had told her she was going to be the boss of her own firm or her own company or whatever word she used. And so um, it goes beyond us and our LPs around what we're doing. And of course, they come first and what we're doing, we take that, our fiduciary responsibility hugely, um, is hugely important to us, but we're doing it broadly as well. And that you know, we carry that with us every day in a good way that motivates us even more. And I think has been the secret to our success, our drive, our hunger and desire. And so that performance culture piece does come into play at Prelude Growth. But also I think as female check writers, Kelly, I think we're proud of the firm that we're building, the culture that we have at, at, um, at reviews at the end of the year. I think May have been Alicia that said, what's the best part of Prelude Growth for you, for you this year? And a number of people said, each other. And I said, damn it, what about us, your leadership, your um, the investments that we've made? And that is really good to hear because we're proud of the fact that everyone loves the firm, loves what we're doing, enjoys each other, um, hopefully for the most part, most days. Um, but I think we've got that right. And... Um, Thirdly, we're not an impact fund. We want, you know, there's no agenda, but we're proud of the fact that 75% of the companies that we've invested in have at least one woman on, um, on the, as a founder or the CEO of the business. That Beyond a woman, 50% of our companies have an additional minority who's either a founder or a CEO broadly defined. Um, that meant, of course, in today's world, most of our companies have clear ESG mandates and initiatives, whether it's Barnes of Pasta with chickpeas being the most, um, really the most efficient source of protein on the planet, or five of our companies are B Corp certified out of 13. So I think we're proud of that, but, but that's being driven by, that's what the consumer cares about today. That's who he or she is. And obviously, that's what we care about. But we are proud of broadly the culture, the people internally, the relationships we have with our founders and uh, the diversity and ESG um, initiatives that is a byproduct of what the, where the world is today and also our own choices. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's a perfect example of, um, you know, you nobody's giving up return by investing with women or people of color, right? I mean, I always used to say, as you know, a portion of my business 
was focused on investing with um, diverse and emerging managers. And I always would say, look, my, my business is the best example that you're not giving anything up. We had $30 billion in assets under management. People don't give you money if they don't think you know what you're doing. But, I, you know, you've also you referenced this earlier about conversations with your um, portfolio companies. You've also been very uh, thoughtful and intentional about your mosaic of LPs that you've brought in because um, having having LPs who are supportive and understand what you're trying to do and understand, you know, the intentional building of the firm, of the portfolio, the size of the funds, all of that is incredibly um I think, essential to the success you all have had. Yes, thank you, Kelly, for that. And and we agree because after we have an LPAC meeting, we genuinely feel that this group deeply wants us to be successful and are rooting for us. And that feels really good. Um, so much so that we had a CIO of a major university endowment send us an email after we presented at the LPAC with a whole, just saying, obviously very nice things, but then giving us some really hard feedback in a good, positive way. I, from, I want you to lean forward. I want you to express, you know, if, if you were a man, you may have said it this way. I want you to say it, but just remarkably valuable. And she is extremely busy. She is, the fact that she showed up for at that point, a plus or minus $250 million fund. She, I mean, she has much bigger fund, but that she, and and we do have a lead and it's not her, but she showed up to our LPAC, which was incredibly appreciated. And that she took the time to write literally a page and a half email and <laughs> um, was just remarkable. And every LP does it in a different way, but I think we're fortunate to have surrounded ourselves um, with people who have that level of we're rooting for you, I want you to be successful, but are equally, you know, give us great feedback and great advice. And um, that's been really important to us. And we were fortunate to be able to have groups around us like that. Yeah, no, you've done a great job there. And so what would you point to then as a high point of your career to date? I think definitely starting Prelude Growth. And I think I didn't appreciate what I was capable of or the many facets to who I am as a leader and um, somebody who co-runs the firm with my co-founder, Alicia Sontag. But obviously, when you're a partner at a firm, I think it was probably using 20% of who I am and what I'm capable of. And I don't think I quite realized, um, you never do realize until you're in there about setting strategy, thinking about culture, hiring and people, the importance of just a strong administrative infrastructure. And somebody has to be thinking about that to pushing the firm forward and, um, and how to build strong relationships with your LP base and on and on and on and on. And so I think you grow exponentially and I don't think I've ever grown as much as in the last five years. And it's been fun because it's dynamic and it's interesting. Um, so I think that was the high point. And I think the day I finally did 
transition to prelude growth. I remember I wore it was it was um a sum it was over the summer and I remember putting on a summer dress that I could never have worn to my former firm and it had little flowers on. I remember I put bright red lipstick on because I would never have worn bright red lipstick. I put my sunglasses on my head and off I went to my first day at work. And it felt I had a spring in my step. It was exciting to be I wanted to wear a summer dress. I wanted to wear bright red lip. I think I was rebelling. I wanted to put sunglasses in my head. And that's exactly what I did. So I just remember that day vividly because it was fun and it was exciting. And um, and I've had a lot of fun. But look, as an entrepreneur, your highs are even higher, but your lows are even lower. And everything is deeply personal and deeply passionate. So, um, I, you know, but... I love what we're doing and love what we're building and we're doing it our way. Well, you know, as you, as you're saying that, um, I certainly see this arc of authenticity because I feel like that moment that you knew you were walking into your own firm and could wear what you wanted to wear and the way you wanted to look, um, you know, it's sort of been moving through your whole career it's been a definition of your success and i do know exactly what you're talking about when you you say that i think every woman is smiling <laughs> now as you're talking about at, that and full circle i'm back to wearing black again <laughs> yeah <laughs> that wears off pretty right. quickly <laughs> yeah no exactly you realize that uniform uh, works really well uh, as well the, the you know the sort of ubiquitous new york black works very well we can't get away with it as much down here in Florida. You really stand out <laughs> if you wear black all the time. Um, so, you know, everybody has a time in their career where they have challenges, where they, you know, don't necessarily have the outcome that they would like. Is there something you would point to that um, didn't work out the way you would have liked that, that then ultimately ended up being a real teachable moment for you? There have been many and they are usually around how I define failure and things not going your way and um, dealing with it by getting back up and perseverance and grit but my first role that I explained my first job there was an internship that was supposed to turn into a full-time role I had I did not have I didn't know what a balance sheet or a cash flow was and in six weeks I couldn't catch up and while others, became, it became a full-time role, it did not for me. And they asked me, they liked me. And so they asked, they said to me, no, we're not sure, but why don't you come back and interview, which was weird for an intern to come back and interview. And, um, you know, I think it was the first time at that point in your career at the age of 20, certainly for me, that I had like royally failed. I had not got, things had not gone my way. Um and, you know, I wasn't even sure if banking was for me, but I think, I think, Kelly, it just came back to pulling yourself together, picking yourself up and saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to show them and I can do this and they're wrong and I'm right. And certainly there have been multiple careers. You haven't got the promotion when you thought you were going to get the promotion or when you deserved it. All those things have happened to me in my career, but at the end of the day, it's, and I, I still see it with people that I work with today, the ones that are able to just pick themselves up and I'm going to show you that type of attitude that I think I learned. It was the first time I learned it, um, but that's just 
been the hallmark of every time I've been, um, you know, uh, things haven't gone my way. Yeah, I know we all talk about, you know, concerns we have about younger generations not being given a chance to fail. And I think I feel very fortunate that a lot of my mentors, a lot of my bosses over the years allowed that to happen and, and, you know, sort of explained it when it did. I still remember when Art Ryan came to be the new CEO at Prudential Insurance Company. And it was the first time I had heard of the 80-20 rule. And, you know, 80% of the time you get it right, 20% of the time you don't. But that's what he wanted. He didn't want perfection because his view was you're not taking enough risk. If it's, if you get it right all the time, it means you're, you're, you're really kind of playing it safe. And I, that was a whole new way for me to think about my career. And um, because I think women so often are afraid of getting anything wrong because often the repercussions for us are, are worse. But, uh, but you're right. I mean, in, in a way, it's a good thing you learn that early in your career because it did make you more resilient. And somebody, because I have two daughters, somebody gave me the great advice of, you know, when your children put you on a pedestal and my mummy does this and runs her own firm and they understand because it's consumer investing. And, and I think, you know, me and my husband try when things don't go my way, we don't get a deal and they've been following it around because they've had the product. I'm like, it didn't work out for <laughs> mummy. They decided to do something else. It's actually, it's hard, but you got to show the failure to your children as well. So as much as we can, especially when they put you on such a pedestal that, Mommy does fail and Papa does fail and he didn't get that promotion when he thought or Mommy didn't get X. And I think it's it, it's good to, to do it, especially in today's world and girls in particular and their desire for perfection. It's critically important um, that we continue to share our failures. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, now I want to move to one of my favorite parts of our interview, which is our lightning round. So I'm just going to throw some questions out to you and, and get your response and reaction. Um, my first question is, do you have sort of a, a guilty pleasure television show or podcast or anything else that you indulge in periodically? Yeah. I mean, I do all of the trashy, you know, or, or just binge watch Succession or White Lotus or Emily in Paris or <laughs> all of I the love above Emily in or Paris. Um, yeah. Suits. You know, I you know I love all those shows. Um, yeah. So yes, I definitely. Agree. But I we binge watch. We do four in a night and keep going. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Meisel. Oh my God, the marvelous Mrs. Meisel. That's so wonderful. She's definitely marvelous. Well. I have to say, I'm, I'm with you. I watch every single one of the ones you just mentioned. I, you know, I particularly appreciate Succession for a lot of reasons, but primarily because there are very few shows on TV that actually are about business. Um, I always liked Mad Men because that was about business. Most of these shows are about, you know, hospitals or law firms or cop shows or fire departments. There's sort of a formula for drama or pop, you know, political world. But there's been very few uh, shows over the years that have been about business. And I do appreciate Succession. I'm not sure the person they use to represent the private equity world is 
is the greatest person. I just rewatched an episode with him and I was like, oh my God, the, the language he used was just, he made us all look so bad. But, um, but I do appreciate that they, um, that they represent the kind of the drama that goes on in our world. Absolutely. So what's your cell phone wallpaper? My girls, of course. Um, of course. The, the center of our lives. Nothing better. Absolutely. Um, so if you had a career other than private equity, what would it be? I think it would be to be an entrepreneur and start a business. I um, That's what I thought I wanted to do when I left business school. And, you know, to some degree, there is a tinge of not jealousy, but when I invest behind great founders and see what they're doing and the businesses that they're building, um, I think that would have been very fun to have gone on that journey of building a business. I agree. I totally agree. Now I'm very happy to back people with great ideas, but I, I totally agree. Totally agree that when I see one, I'm like, why didn't I think of that? That's a, that was a yeah. great idea. Or, I did think of that years ago. Why didn't I pursue that? Because now someone else is doing it and they're doing yeah. really well. Um, so are you a dog or a cat person? Well, given my Persian heritage, I should be a Persian cat person, but I'm not. I'm a dog person. <laughs> so I feel torn, but unfortunately, I'm a dog person. Yeah. Um, I would say the vast majority of our guests are. I have, I'm both. We don't. We currently have a dog, but we had cats for years as well. We, it's just nice to have. Um, and what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? The best piece of advice I was given is when I had my first child and a senior woman said to me, over invest in help. And that really resonated with me. So I had my nanny, whether I needed her not stay extra hours, she would work 12 hours a day, not necessarily because me and my husband couldn't get there, but because I wanted peace of mind. And when I had a second child, it was crazy. I was, um, I was a principal. I, I wasn't a partner. I was a principal at, at El Caddeton. I hired a second person, not because we necessarily needed it, but because it gave me peace of mind, not worrying that one child wasn't going to some activity or couldn't get their nap or what being dragged around. And I was just that neurotic mom who needed peace of mind. And so, and somebody who could, that apartment was clean. And look, I was probably giving away more than half my salary, certainly after tax as a, you know, mm -hmm. to have this level of help. But I think the point was, and I say this over invest in help because you're doing it for your long-term career. Don't wait to give up. I don't want you to sit back. I don't want you to not give 100% because you're worried about everything else going on in the background that you can solve. You want to be there for your children. You want to maximize your time with your children. But if it means giving away some crazy in the long term of, of what your career will be like over the next 40 years, this is an investment worth making. And I did that and just try as much as you can to surround yourself with. I didn't have the fortune, but family and, you know, my husband's family is in India, mine's in London, but they would come for six weeks at a time, each of them. So you need, it takes an army and you can't do it all on your own. And you have to figure out a way with 
spending more than you want to or family or friends, but how are we going to do this together to get through this period without um, compromising where you want to compromise because of time with your children, but giving yourself peace of mind because it's the mind. As I look back, it was the, the guilt, the mind playing in your own head that was the hardest part. Not that I felt I wasn't spending enough time with my children or not that I wasn't enjoying what I was doing. It was just all a mental game with me that I wanted to reduce that pressure. And I think it helped. I think that's such great advice. I, I still remember one of my colleagues at DLJ um, decided you know, at a later age that she wanted to have another baby. She already had uh, uh, three sons and decided to have another baby when she was in her 40s. And she had daytime and nighttime, like round the clock nannies. And, you know, as you said, it's because you have to make the investment in their care, but also your own mental health. Correct. Absolutely. That was great. Advice. Well, that's a great bit of advice to uh, to leave on. This has been an incredible conversation. I, I often say that um, it's wonderful to have female friends in the industry, um, even better to have friends who are making you money, which you certainly are doing. And I'm very grateful to you and Alicia for all you do. I'm also grateful for all the amazing products that you turn me on to because I use <laughs> almost I use almost everything that you guys invest in. So um, my husband's always like, what is the, here's another package has arrived today. I was like, don't worry about it. You know, <laughs> just ordered the, just ordered the new Westman Atelier eye pencil. I'm excited to use that. But anyway, um, this has been such a great conversation and it's been so amazing to watch you and Alyssa build this amazing firm. And I'm so grateful to have had you today as a guest on Moments That Made Her. Thank you, Kelly. And you know, on behalf of myself and Alicia, we thank you for everything you do with PE Win and your vision. What you know, to all those years back to build an organization like that, we benef benefited hugely. We were part of Project Pink Light, and it was hugely valuable. Um, thank you for supporting our firm. Thank you for all the advice along the way. It's been hugely impactful for us. So, thank you for everything you do. And Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PE Win Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PE Win expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by P.E. Wynn and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Wynn's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.